Well, thank you so much, Naomi. I appreciate anybody that can do two things at once. You obviously grew up doing your homework in front of the television. Uh, and so you can uh, play and sing at the same time, and that's impressive. Let me extend my personal greeting uh, to Dr. Singh Oldham and Dr. Bill Arnold today. We're so glad to have representatives of the Southern Baptist Convention Executive Committee and from the Baptist Journal Convention of Texas. We are always glad to have you folks here. Thank you for coming and being a part of our chapel today. And we especially thank you, although crowd's done pretty well here after all said and done, but the fact of the matter is that most folks are busy uh, with their final studies today. Thank you for your faithfulness, whoever you are. Let me urge you to be faithful in chapel next week. On uh, Tuesday, you will have to listen to me one more time, but then on Wednesday, our student preacher, and that'll be fun. And uh, so you don't want to miss that in our last week of chapel before we get ready to study for final exams. Now, if you have your Bible this morning, I want you to turn to the book of Titus, and uh, this is the seventh and final message in the series on the book of Titus. And we come to the third chapter and begin reading today with verse 8 in a segment of the scripture that is almost never mentioned. And yet it's an important segment. And uh, I am grateful for the opportunity each spring to uh, walk through a book of the Bible and attempt to show you uh, how a pastor ought to do it. Now, I'm not sure how my preaching department here would grade all of this that I do. I fear that in light of the dean of the school of preaching's penchant for lying about things as he did in much of my introduction and his inability to figure out who Melchizedek is, I am grateful uh, that uh, I don't think I'll get a grade on it, but whether I do or I don't, we are going to finish it up. So chapter 3 of the book of Titus beginning in verse 8 to the end of the chapter, we read, this is a faithful saying, and these things I want you to affirm constantly that those who have, received, who have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable to men, but avoid foolish disputes, genealogical discussions, contentions, and strivings about the law. Why do you avoid those? Because they are unpro unprofitable and they are, in the final analysis, useless. Now reject a heretic after the first and second admonition, knowing that such a person is warped and sinning, being self-condemned. Now when I send Artemis to you, um, or Tychicus, whichever I choose to send, be diligent to come to me at Nicopolis, for I've decided to spend the winter there. Now send Zenos, the lawyer, and Apollos on their journey with haste, so that they may lack nothing. And let our people also learn to maintain good works and to meet urgent needs so that they may, though they may not be unfruitful." All who are with me greet you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Greet, uh, grace be to all of you. And the final word, of course, amen, which is a Hebrew term that means let it be so. It's an amen to the entire book. 
Well, you read it in the newspaper, heard it on your uh, phone, on the news, whatever. Aaron Hernandez is dead. He has taken his own life. This magnificent specimen of a tight end who caught passes for Tim Tebow on a University of Florida uh, team that won the national championship and went on to catch passes for Tom Brady uh, at uh, the New England Patriots. This man who had a national championship under his belt, this man who was playing in a Super Bowl, this man who had a $40 million five-year contract, roughly what you'll be paid at the first church you go to serve as pastor, a $40 million five-year contract, a murderer, and now he can't face it any further, and he takes his own life. Now, aside from the fact that we ought to feel great pity for this man because obviously many unfortunate things happened in his life to bring him to this point. But my real point in mentioning it this morning is to say, do you notice that money, fame, physical preparation, physique, all of those kinds of things that we think make for a happy life generally make a man miserable. Uh, I hope you will understand that we ought not to so put those people high in our estimation that just because they have fame, just because they have money, we think everything is going well for them. Quite to the contrary, the pastor is the man who ought to be walking with God so that whatever his physical circumstances may be, whatever his financial circumstances may be, he's the one that has it together. Paul is coming to the end of this epistle to Titus, and he has covered quite a number of subjects as we've seen, but now he has a final word for Titus. In your ministry, Titus, I want you to remember to do certain things. This is a faithful saying, a, a sure saying. And uh, these things I want you uh, to affirm constantly to those who have believed in God. Well, what things is he talking about? He's talking about what he just talked about above that we talked about last week that we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures and living in malice and envy and hateful and hating one another. You keep that message before the people. But then the kindness and love of God our Savior toward men appeared, not by works of righteousness we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ. Christ our Savior, that having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. That which I have just told you is the message I want you constantly to affirm to your people. Well, hey, I told them that last week. We'll tell them again this week. 
Well, I spent half the year on that. We'll spend the whole year on it this time. What he's saying is that those unchangeable truths of Holy Scripture are to be the point of the emphasis, Titus, that you are to bring to the people. And it is the point that you, as a preacher of the gospel, if God has called you to do that, as a teacher of the good news of Christ, even if it is to uh, an audience that someone might think unimportant, it is important. Children, women, whoever the audience may be, we are there to do what? We are there to affirm constantly that those who have believed in God might follow this message. And so what he's telling Titus is, I don't want you to teach your favorite theories. I don't want you to spend a lot of time with things that have no consequence in the in the long term. I, I want you to concentrate and constantly affirm those things that I have told you above. And why is that? So that those who believe in God might be careful to maintain good works. Now, we spend a lot of time saying salvation is by grace through faith, not by works. And that is absolutely true. But we have been saved so that we may excel in good works. We have been born again in order that our life and attitude may demonstrate Christian virtue. Without the new birth, without regeneration, we're totally unable to do that. We set out, we turn over a new leaf, we make a New Year's resolution, and for a little while we walk along okay, but then we fall into difficulty and we cannot keep it up because there is no regenerate soul within us. But when regeneration has occurred and we have a preacher who constantly affirms the great truths of God's word, the result will be a congregation who demonstrates the effect of that in the fact that they will have good works. We are saved in order that we may exhibit the life of Christ. How can you be like Jesus unless you've been made like Jesus through the new birth? But how can you fail to be like Jesus having been born again with the new life of God in your heart, you must exhibit it. Now, that's a sure sign that a lot of folks who claim to be saved aren't saved. When you don't see any good works in their lives, not an indication that they've fallen from salvation, it's an indication they've never been saved to begin with. And our churches are full of such. And so the fact is, you're to tell them these things, affirm them repeatedly in order that they may do these good works, which are both good and profitable. They produce a wonderful residue. On the other hand, avoid foolish disputes. You're going to love the word foolish there. In the Greek New Testament, the word foolish is moros. What do you suppose we get from that? Uh, you got it. A bunch of morons. And so don't be a moron. Don't uh, follow moronic disputes. 
uh, genealogies. We don't know exactly what he's referring to, but because he's working in a context of Pharisees and, and uh, others in the Jewish faith, they had uh, become very interested in the multiple genealogies that occur in the Old Testament. Many of them spent most of their time trying to reconcile one of those with the other, when in fact sometimes reconciliation is not possible on this side. Now, I have uh, bet every ounce of everything I possess that they are reconcilable. I do believe in the inerrancy of God's word, and one day we'll see how they are reconcilable. But the fact is that until then, we don't have all the resolutions to the difficult passages in the Bible. Remember that the declaration of the inerrancy of God's word is not a declaration that we understand all of it. We don't. Show me the man that says he understands it all, I'll show you an immense liar. It is not true. That's the reason we study it, we come to seminary, we labor over it, we do everything we can, but we come to it believing that God has spoken, and if God has spoken, then we can trust it. So avoid those foolish disputes about genealogies. And then look at this word, contentions, contentions. The Greek word eris. Some years ago, a neo-Orthodox theologian by the name of Brunner, Emil Brunner in Germany, said that he did not believe that apologetics was a possibility if he were to speak to our the school of theology and to our apologists. We heard one excellent one yesterday, as you know. And he would say, Brunner would say to him, you are wasting your time to do apologetics. You cannot do apologetics. But he said, you can do aristics. What in the world is aristics? Anyway, well, it comes from this word eris. It means to cause strife. A moment ago, Dr. Allen, in his sweet and inimitable way, accused me of uh, being a cause of problems and upheaval. If so, I've been guilty of errors. And uh, so errors is to cause a contention. And Emil Brunner said, you can take the other person's argument and you can destroy that. And so he suggested eristics instead of apologetics. I'd like to suggest that there's no reason why you can't do both. But the fact of the matter is that here this word is not used in a happy manner. Contentions, just stirring up trouble, just stirring the pot, just causing upheaval wherever you go. Strivings about the law. Why does he not want Titus to do that? Because such an effort has no profit associated with it. It doesn't do any good for anybody. And it is useless since so many of those problems belong to God in his final solution. Well, on the other hand, while you don't just stir things up, there is a time to act because in every church, there is inevitably somebody who was born in the objective case and the kickety mood. They are called in verse 10, divisive men. Reject a divisive man. Actually, in the Greek New Testament, that is the word heretic. Her heretic. A heretic. Oh, that's a 
four-letter word, isn't it? No, not four letters, more than four letters. Well, it's an awful word, isn't it? No, it's not an awful word. The word heretic means somebody who cuts another direction. That's all it means. Well, a man who is a heretical man who's cutting the other way from biblical doctrine after a first and a second admonition, then abandon him, avoid him, leave him alone, knowing that such a person is warped and sinning, being self-condemned. Now, I want you to be prepared for this. In your church, wherever you go, there are people who are lost. Oftentimes, those people are very interested in their own projects. Now, I'm going to pick on my particular state of uh, belief for a moment. I am, as you know, and properly so, according to the New Testament, a pre-tribulation, pre-millennialist. But when I go to a church, I pray, dear God, let them be nothing. Let me teach them. Don't let them have a preconceived opinion about it because if there is one there who, like me, is pre-trib, pre-mill, he may well be a troublemaker. He will be a troublemaker because he's got it all figured out. And he knows nobody else has it figured out like he does. And God has called him not to be the pastor of the church. At least the people didn't recognize him as such. But God has called him to set the whole church straight. And he is going to study nothing but eschatology. He's not going to be interested in the doctrine of the atonement. He's not going to be interested in the doctrine of the person work of Christ. He's not going to be interested in the creation narrative, except as it pops up somehow in his eschatology. But he is going to wear you out with eschatology. As soon as you finish preaching, he is there. Not to make a decision, but to lead you in making a decision. And when you come off the platform, he is going to hit you up with his latest discovery. He will have discovered things that you are amazed about. He will be able to tell you exactly when the cherubim appear and the wheels within the wheels in the book of Ezekiel. He'll be able to describe that to you far better than Ezekiel did it. And he'll be able to paint the picture in such a way that he is amazed at your ignorance as a seminary graduate that you cannot do it in the same way. And there'll be people like that. It may not be eschatology. It may be some other subject they've gone to seed on. And they are not following Paul's directive to keep the emphasis on the major doctrines and keep on restating those. But instead, this person has become divisive in the church of the living God. Now, what do you do with a guy who is divisive in the church of the living God? Compassionately, carefully, in the spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ, you may have to say to a man, you are not welcome in this fellowship anymore. That doesn't mean you exclude him from coming to church. You want him to come to church. Maybe you'll hear the truth and we'll turn to it. But you are going to say to him, 
And we had a little demonstration of it. I showed you how when we uh, showed how to do the Lord's Supper here. You may say to him, you're not welcome at God's table anymore because you're not in fellowship with this church. You are divisive to the fellowship of the church. And you may have to deal with him. But you don't do it until there's been a first and a second admonition. This is an admonition that is not given from the pulpit. It is an admonition that is not given merely between you and this individual. But you take another godly person with you who can affirm that this is what is going on and you say to him, my sweet brother, do you not realize that what you're doing is dividing our church? And we cannot afford to be divided. We have a world of seven billion people out there desperately needing to hear the gospel. And our people have to be trained in the basics of Christianity again and again and again until they are second nature with them and they go out to reach those lost people for Jesus Christ. You must stop this and join us in the fellowship of the church, in that which we have in common, koinonia, fellowship, that which we have in common. Not this thing that you're off on, We'll leave that to judge, uh, God to judge someday, whether you're right or wrong, but we're not going that way, and you're not going to be divisive in the fellowship of the church. Now, folks, this is where some of you will get in trouble. You may do it perfectly, and the result may be that because he is related to half of the congregation, and because of the fact that he happens to give the largest tithe, your people may say to you, we've had it with you, Pastor. God is calling you elsewhere. You've heard me say before, I say it again. I have no respect for anybody that hadn't been fired at least once, provided it's for the right reason. Now, if you're fired from a church because you got a bad attitude, if you're fired from a church because you've got a chip on your shoulder, if you're fired from a church because your attitude does not reflect that of Christ, if you're fired from a church for heresy, if you're fired from a church for moral, moral turpitude, then I have no sympathy with you whatever at all. But if you do it right and you admonish this man and plead with him and pray with him, even with tears... After a first and second admonition, you reject, and if they fire you, I'll be right there as long as I have breath to help you on the way. It happens somewhere every Sunday. It happens time and time again every Sunday. It may happen to you. I want to remind you that being fired is not the end of the world unless you deserved it. If you deserved it, fine. Wake up, get right with God. But if you did things God's way and they fired you, it's all right. It's just a stepping stone to what God really has for you. And God was gracious enough to you to take you out of the situation that you could not handle anyway. Isn't God good? Isn't he gracious to do that? Oh, but preacher, it hurts so bad. Sure it did. 
need to hurt a little bit. If you don't hurt a little bit, well, you won't appreciate it when you don't hurt. I've been telling myself that for days now, and, and uh, it is absolutely the Lord's truth. If you don't hurt a little along the way, you won't be able to appreciate the good times. And so God will let it hurt you because you learn more through agony and heartache and sorrow. You learn how to depend on God. And not only do you learn how to depend on God, you learn out of that his ableness to sustain you and uphold you and take care of you. So if he's a heretic after the first and the second admonition, you reject him knowing that he that such a person is warped and sinning and is self-condemned already. Now watch what he does here in the end and we're through. When I send Artemis to you, or maybe it'll be Tychicus, be diligent to come to me at Nicopolis, for I've determined to spend the winter there. Is that holy writ? Yeah, it's exactly what he intended to do, spend the winter there. And he just shows us the humanness of the Apostle Paul. He's not going to travel in the winter. Uh, he's Paul the age now. He's coming to the end of his ministry. And uh, well, he's going to spend the winter in Nicopolis, so come to me there. And then comes the most interesting statement of all, send Zenos, the lawyer, and Apollos on their journey with haste so that they may lack nothing. Now, there are two things I want you to see in that verse. First of all, send Zenos and Apollos in such a way that they lack nothing. This is a stewardship passage. This is about giving to the work and the workers of God. Now, preacher, if you are not yourself a tither, I hope no church will call you as pastor. And if they do call you, I hope they will fire you because you are responsible for setting the example. Oh, you Old Testament legalist. Talking about tithing, may I just remind you that tithing was instituted long before the law was ever given. As I remember it, you help me, Dr. Allen, but Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek, that strange character that you're still trying to learn properly to identify. And Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek. What a man Melchizedek was. He was greater than Abraham because that's what the Bible says, that the lesser paid tithes to the greater. And this is a long time before the law ever comes into being. You see, the tithe is like the Sabbath day. That's a, that was a principle incorporated in the law. But the Sabbath day is from creation. One-seventh of your time belongs to God. I don't care what dispensation you live in. And a tenth of your money. But you've got to be a man of God. And so a tenth is where you start. You give a tenth of the work of the church. And then there is also to support the Southern Baptist Convention. Aren't you glad if, if, he, if you were not supporting this man right here? He'd be sitting here totally nude today. But he has a suit and a tie on. 
praise God. And so I'm happy I gave to the Southern Baptist Convention. And there's a Baptist General Convention of Texas right behind him. Oh, dear, would he be a mess if we had not given in order that he may. And besides that, there are all kinds of mission opportunities that you have out there. Planting a church somewhere. Every church that's a New Testament church ought to constantly be planting two churches at least somewhere in the world, one here in the United States and one overseas. Send them on their way means you see to it that they are equipped for the journey with everything they possibly need. Send them on their way. And one more thing I want you to see is send Zenos the lawyer. Preacher, get ready your lawyer jokes. All of you tell them, some of them are funny. They're true about some people. Our civilization has become bogged down in a legal system. When you look at what our congressmen have done in Washington, D.C., making laws has become a sport. It's a very expensive sport. We're way, way, way over the top in the number of laws that we have in this country. Much of what goes on in courts of law is unquestionably nothing other than a way to pay lawyer salaries. We see it all the time. But you need also to remember before you get into lawyer jokes that many of the greatest preachers who ever lived started out their career in law. I hold in my hand today a book just released by one of our faculty members, Robert Caldwell, just released this book, Theologies of the American Revivalist. Good book to read. I hope you'll get a copy of it and read it. Now, in this book, uh, Dr. Caldwell makes notice of the fact that Charles G. Finney had some problems in his theology. He did. Not all the problems some people think, but he did have some problems in his theology. I wouldn't follow everything in Charles G. Finney's theology, but let me tell you what Finney did understand. Finney understood that like the lawyer before the jury, when he presented the gospel of Jesus Christ, he was there to present it in such a way that this huge jewelry that often consisted of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people out there, he was responsible. But with the power of the Spirit of God that no attorney in the classroom or in the, in the courtroom could ever claim to have that in the same way, by the power of the Spirit, he was moving toward a verdict. He was pleading for a verdict. Here is the life of Christ. Here is the death of our Lord. Here is his mighty resurrection from the dead. Will you not respond and say yes to Christ? And he gave a public invitation. You bet. He understood that. And every preacher ought to understand it. We don't know why Paul wanted Zenos to come. He doesn't say. We don't know anything else about him except this reference. Maybe Paul already knew that his own legal trouble was mounting. And there was need for a godly lawyer who could help him 
traverse the way. Maybe that's what it was. But maybe Zenos, like Finney, has a lawyer who had found Christ, and maybe even under the preaching of Apollos, who was a, a famous preacher and now was coupled with him, and maybe he has this new profession. We really don't know, but we do know that in spite of all the problems with Roman law, and nobody knew him better than Paul, he wasn't telling lawyer jokes. Instead, he was reaching and using lawyers for Christ. Now, folks, I'm preaching to myself. I've told them, I know the one about, if you had all the lawyers in a huge ocean liner and ocean and things sank, what would you have? You'd have a better world. I know all of those. I've, I've heard them all. And unfortunately, I've told some of them. I'm just telling you that per se, the legal profession is a noble profession. The fact that some people have made mockery of it doesn't mean it's all bad. Preaching profession is a great profession. Does the fact that some people make mockery of it reduce it to nothing? No. Well, Zenos is important to Paul, and he says, Zenos, the lawyer, and Apollos helped them on their way with haste. That's probably the biggest indication that he had left the legal profession and become a preacher because he has to be helped, okay? And so help him on the way so that they may lack nothing and let our people learn to maintain good works and to meet urgent needs so that they may not be unfruitful. And then the final greeting, all who are with me greet you. Greet those who love us in the faith May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. In the little book of Titus, so small a book, powerful in its message, comes to an end. May God be praised for that book. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you today for this wonderful book of Titus. Lord knows I have not done any justice to it at all. But I thank you, Lord, that we can point people to it and that you make a difference in our lives as we apply its message. May, may we be faithful today in applying the things that really matter and not be dissuaded into matters that make no difference. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.